This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So a couple summers ago, there was a mama squirrel that was trying to build a nest on my front porch. Many of you have seen my front porch. It's very small, and it's like about five feet from my front door, and so she was trying to build this nest on a little ledge up there. And I knew that this was not going to go down well for both of us. So I tried to convince her with all of my reasoning powers that this was not a good idea. I told her, look, I came out and I told her, look, this is five feet from the door. I'm not going to be using the back door this whole time. I tried to scare her. I tried to shoo her away. I tried to tell her that there were other trees in my yard that she could gladly use. She could have any one of them. Finally, she gave up, but at one point in my scroogey little heart, I thought, I really want to help this squirrel. And then I was reminded of this story I heard in high school told by this guy named Paul Harvey about this old farmer that was watching these birds in a blizzard, and he was trying to help them, and this idea came to, my, to his mind. He said, if only I could become a bird, then I could help these birds. And so I thought at one point, if only I could become a squirrel, I could help this squirrel. <laughs> yeah, that's, sorry, I, I didn't, should warn you, there's going to be some disturbing images during this <laughs> sermon. It's rated PG-13. Um, that'll be the last one. Um, so, but I didn't, I can't do that, as you can see, um, nor did I want to do that. You know why, kids? Because squirrels are really naughty. I mean, the, squirrel, the squirrels, they, they pee on my front porch. They stuff acorns into the work boots that I keep on the front porch. I just really didn't want to help them. But that squirrel story, that bird story, are trying in a very imperfect way to get at something really profound, something at the heart of the Christian faith, something at the heart of the message of the Bible, something at the heart of what the church is all about, something at the heart of Christmas. And Christians for 2,000 years have been summing it up in one word. It's the word incarnation. It means to become enfleshed, to become inhuman. And the story of Christmas is that the God of all things has become human in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ and the Father were actually one working together, and this God became flesh and walked in our neighborhood and wept with us and sweat with us and felt our pain and was rejected just like us and then died for us. Our gospel reading, you heard two things, two contrasting things. Christ the Lord. When somebody that day was calling somebody the Lord, it didn't just mean he was an important ruler. It meant he was God. And yet this the Lord is wrapped in swaddling cloths. How do you get those two things together? That's the incarnation. And only in the Bible will you find a story of a God who became vulnerable for human beings. And the word vulnerable literally means woundable. Only in the Bible will you find a God who became woundable for us. It's a strange idea. The outspoken atheist Richard Dawkins once said, talking about Jesus becoming a human being, God becoming a human being in a first century Jewish culture was, he said, pretty bonkers. 
But to us who know this news, it is the most liberating, revolutionary good news that we could ever imagine about who God is and what kind of relationship we can have with this God and also good news about us for human flourishing. That is what is at the heart of the Christmas story. So I want to invite you to join me for about 15 minutes or thereabouts. Now I have a good friend here tonight. I'll call his name Jim Bell, um, because that's his name, and Jim is holding me to 15 minutes very tightly. So if you know Jim Bell, um, just turn to him and say, start your clock, Jim, right now, because the introduction doesn't, start, doesn't count. It starts right now. So in your Bible, I want to I do what our beloved Bishop Stewart calls Bible work tonight. So we're going to do 15 minutes of Bible work. And I want you to join me, so if you look down and in the seat in front of you, you will find some Bibles, and in that Bible, I want you to turn to page 980. If you don't want to turn to your Bibles while you're getting them, also for a limited time, we're going to show the Scripture verses on the screen. But don't expect that on any Sunday morning, okay? Because we really want you to read the Bibles. But this little hymn that we heard read in the first scripture reading for the book of Philippians is actually an ancient Christian song lyrics or poetry. And every word was chosen carefully, and every word is packed with meaning. And let me just give you the overall shape of this, of this passage in Philippians chapter 2. So it starts here. The shape of this thing goes like this. And then it bottoms out, and then it comes up again. So you will see it starts in verse 6. It says Jesus is in the very form of God. We'll talk about what that means. And then it ends with Jesus is Lord. Every tongue confessing Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then at the bottom, we see phrases like he humbled himself. He emptied himself. He took on the likeness of a servant. He became a human being. He died a death on the cross. So this passage is going to tell us you can't get any higher than Jesus, and you can't get any lower than Jesus. That's the message of this text. So, so let's, let's look at it. Let's take a, a, a little closer look at verses 5 and 6. So when it says that Jesus is in the form of God, that's a very specific Greek word in the original language. It means it's a word that referred to something that is the same, exactly the same on the inside as it is on the outside. The exact same nature on the inside is reflected on the outside. Now, no human being is perfectly like that. We strive to be like that. We strive to be people of integrity, but we never get there. But Jesus, it's saying that Jesus had the form of God. So the exact nature of God was this exactly what you saw in the person and the attitudes and the actions of Jesus. So for instance, when the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let, it, let there be light, and it was so, and when the Bible says, the, the, the Bible talks about God liberating the people, uh, the Jewish people through the Exodus and giving the Ten Commandments, and when the Bible and the, and the prophet Isaiah talks about these magnificent celestial beings around the throne of God who can't stop cannot stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Or when God says to the prophet Amos, a, a verse that 
was particularly meaningful to Martin Luther King Jr. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. When the Bible says, when Philippians 2 says Jesus is in the form of God, it means that God. Jesus is in the form of that God. The exact nature is what you saw in the life of Jesus. You can't get any higher than that. But then notice the next word at the end of verse 6. It said that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, there are people that have written whole books on that verse and what it means, but let me try to summarize it the best that I understand it. It probably means this, that Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not count, did not consider, did not think, did not grasp, did not seize hold of the privileges and prerogatives that we would think of that God should grab hold of. So let me give you an example. In Papua New Guinea, where my son lives, there are, in every village, there's what's called a big man. And a big man is a man who's really big. So they call him a big man. And he really is big. And he sort of runs the village. I mean, everything goes through him. And he often does a lot of good things for the village, but he can often use his power and his privilege to do some really bad things. I mean, really bad things. So this little ancient Christian hymn is telling us when you think of Jesus, or a lot of people, when they think of God, they think of God as kind of like a big man. God sort of says, hey, I'm big. I get what I want, and I want you to do this, and I want you to do that. And yet this verse is telling us that Jesus, in the form of God, doesn't act like a big man at all. As a matter of fact, look what happens next. He says, although he was a form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to hold on to, but he emptied himself. And then in verse 8, there's another thing that Jesus did. He humbled himself. And then there's all those great clauses. By taking the form of, of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, you can't get any lower than dying on a cross. It is the most painful, it is the most shameful, it is the most seemingly sinful way to die. And yet Jesus was in the form of God, so he was sinless. You can't get any lower than that. Now, is this good news? A lot of people don't think so. A lot of people in early Greek and Roman culture thought this was foolish, thought this was weak, thought this was disgusting. It reflects badly on God. It's undignified. There was a young man named Nabil Qureshi who grew up in a devout Muslim home and studied and encountered and became a follower of Jesus. And he was talking to a Muslim friend of his, a young woman, and she said to him, Nabil, how can you believe Jesus is God if he was born through the birth canal of a woman and that he had to use the bathroom? Aren't these things beneath God? And Nabil said, that's a good question. Let me ask you a question. Let's say you're going to a ceremony and you're dressed up with your finest dress and you're walking along and you see your daughter face down and she's drowning in a pool of mud. Would you jump into the mud to save her? And she said, of course I would jump into the mud and save her. And he said, well, let's say we were traveling with other people. 
would you tell somebody else to jump in the mud and get her? And she said, of course not. She's my daughter. I'm going to be the one to go into the mud. And he said, if you and us as human parents love like that, the God of the universe who loves us, who is pursuing us, who is chasing after us, who wants to be in relationship with us, don't you think he would do everything he can possibly do to get in the mud with us and pull us out? To lay aside his dignity for us. To lay aside his majesty to save us. Now this text is telling us that Jesus never gave up his godness. He remained fully God, but he became fully human, both at the same time. Why did he do it? Well, in a minute or two, we're just, we're going to say our creed that we say every Sunday. And what does it say? For us and for our salvation. It doesn't explain it beyond that. He did it for us and for our salvation. Remember that U-shaped, there's nothing higher than Jesus, and yet he comes down and down and down, down into our loneliness, down into our shame, down into our rejection, down into the world's violence, down into the world's poverty, down into the world's injustice, down, down, down. You can't get any lower than where Jesus went, down into our sin, down into our rebellion against God, down into the ways we hurt others, to be vulnerable, to be a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, so that forever he could be mingled with your sorrow and my sorrow, forever he could bear our dirt and pain and sin. As Paul would say in another part of the New Testament, St. Paul, this wasn't like God was up there doing something and Jesus was down here doing all the dirty work. No, it was God was in Christ. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. He who knew no sin was made no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the message of the gospel. But remember the new shape? It ends up here, verses 9 through 11. This hymn, this poem, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, Christians, followers of Jesus, had said, this has an impact on how we live our lives. Some of us, in some ways, different ways and different callings, but we are called to follow this downward descent, to move into people's sorrow, suffering, poverty, places of violence, places where nobody else wants to go. I was talking to a pastor in Papua New Guinea, and she was, I was telling her, you know, I've been reading some anthropologists, and they say that, you know, Christianity was just so tied up with colonialism that, that you just can't separate them, and Christianity has done way more harm than good. And this Papua New Guinea pastor said, she just, she was shocked. She said, what? Who said this? Who is this person? I want to meet this person. I want to punch this person. No, she didn't say that, but <laughs> she, was, she was like angry. She said, are you kidding me? It's the church. 
It's the church in Papua New Guinea that's going to places where the government can't get to. It's the church that's going into the jungle and bringing medical care. It's the church that's bringing the good news of the gospel. It's the church that's living, loving the unlovable. This man has no idea what he's talking about. He doesn't know us at all. That's sometimes we're called to do that in literal ways, and sometimes we're always asking in our lives, Lord Jesus, what, is, what, are, what am I called to do in this U-shaped pattern to my life? Here's what it all gets back to, though. Christmas always gets back to this. It starts with a lot of different places, gifts, family, fun, presents. They're all good. They're all great. But those are sort of like the flowers on the Christmas tree. The roots of the Christmas tree are here. Simply this question. Who are you confessing as Lord of your life? Everybody has a Lord. Everybody has something. We all have something, a way we live our life, a, a way we set our priorities, uh, people we listen to, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, things we're subject to. We all live under the lordship of something. This scripture text is saying, I tell you, there's two reasons, two reasons why Jesus is truly the only Lord. Because nobody's higher than Jesus and nobody's lower than Jesus. You know, I was thinking about this sermon and I was thinking about the last 40 years of my life since I've been a follower of Jesus and, and sort of thinking, why am I still a follower of Jesus? Why am I still rooted in the church? Because there have been many times in my life where I seriously considered walking away. Not lately, mind you, so just be at ease about that. But at different points in my life, I could have walked away. Why am I still here? Why do I still love Jesus and his church? Well, I guess it boils down to this this text. There's nothing higher than Jesus. There's no Lord above him. There's no Lord more worthy. But a lot of religions could say that. But here's the second thing. There's also no one that's gone lower than Jesus. No one who has done more to search us out, to find us, to pay more of a price to get to us. That's the message of Christmas. Jesus is Lord, because there's nobody higher and there's nobody lower. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.